Good morning. If I were to tell you that uh, we are, um, by the way, my name's Jake. If you're new, I'm the college pastor here. If I were to tell you that, um, since I don't get to speak very often, I picked a passage from Philippians today. What passage do you think I would have picked? The whole book of Philippians. All kinds of awesome passages to select from. Would you say? I heard somebody answer me. 4.8, which is, I can do, what is that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? No, that's whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure. What else? 4.13, that's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What else? 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't even know how I know this. <laughs> what else? You guys, quit giving me verses. 212, what is that? <laughs> 316, I think that's just the universal answer for every, <laughs> every book. Of, something 316. What? You know these passages, right? The book of Philippians is full of glorious passages of Scripture. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I count everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, think about these things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So um, here's my shot to preach to you. Here's the passage I picked. See if you saw it coming. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. See it coming? Alex did. It's because he checked the bulletin. This morning's passage is uh, one of those passages in Scripture that we don't often give much attention to. Have you even ever heard, okay, college students, keep your hands down. (laughs) Have you even ever heard a sermon on this passage before? It's the kind of passage we skip over very easily when we're doing our devotions, because it looks to us just like housekeeping, right? I'm sending Timothy to you. Oh yeah, and Epaphroditus, I'm sending him first. He was sick. Thanks, by the way, for sending him and the gifts that you sent with him. Okay, now moving on, right? That's how we look at a passage like this. It's housekeeping. But there are a couple reasons I want to focus on this passage today. One is just because I think the church at Philippi is a good contrast to the church at Corinth. Okay, we've been studying 1 Corinthians for a long time. A long time. 
And I think seeing a contrast will be helpful in our study of 1 Corinthians. In fact, I think this passage actually helps explain the Corinthians to us. Okay? But the main reason I want to focus on this passage is that there is really only one basic command here. Hold men like this in high regard. Men like Epaphroditus, and I think that extends to Timothy. The ESV says it this way, honor such men. Honor such men. The Apostle Paul is telling the church at Philippi to honor men like Epaphroditus and Timothy. And when he does that, he tells us what distinguishes Epaphroditus and Timothy as men who are honorable from those who are not honorable. And it just so happens that that's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's start working through the passage. Just a couple background things. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. Okay? Now, he's writing from prison in Rome. And he says he wants to send Timothy to Philippi. Here's why he chose Timothy. Verse 20, he says this, I have no one else of kindred spirit. The SV puts it this way, I have no one like him. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul has no one like Timothy. No one. No one will be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. Everyone else he has seeks their own interests, not those of Christ. Timothy's different. Now, here's the first question I want to ask. When Paul tells us that everyone seeks their own interests, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the pagans? He's talking about other pastors? Is that what you said? That's right. He's talking about fellow Christians. He's talking about the kinds of people he has around him on his missionary journeys. He's looking around at the people he has around him. And he's saying, of everyone I have, I have no one like Timothy. I have no one of kindred spirit. Everybody else seeks their own interests. He's talking about people who are supposed to not only be Christians, but are supposed to be helping him out in his work as a missionary. He's talking about his companions. Now, why on earth would that be the case? Think back on who the Apostle Paul is. When you think about the Apostle Paul, who do you think about? What do you think about? What do you remember about him? Well, you remember that he once persecuted Christians, right? And you remember that on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ and was changed. And he became a preacher and church planter who himself suffered persecution. One of the things that we don't tend to remember about the Apostle Paul is how he had to do all of his work, and that was alone. Everywhere he went, he almost always was, had to stand alone. He was almost always never supported. He was nearly always abandoned. So in 2 Timothy 1.15, he writes Timothy about some of the missionary journeys he's been on. And he tells Timothy that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Except for one man in his household who are not ashamed of his chains. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he writes that everyone in Troas deserted him. In fact, he lists names when he writes to Timothy. We have a list of people who have turned their back on Paul, who have turned away. Hymenaeus has the honor of being listed twice, both in 1st and 2nd Timothy. And then there's Alexander and Phygelus and Hermogenes and Philetus. People just list by name. Everywhere he goes, people leave him, abandon him. 
And it's also true of the churches that he plants. He spent nearly two years, over a year and a half in Corinth, laboring among them, planting their church, caring for them, building them up in the faith. But if you read the two letters that we have in the New Testament to the church at Corinth, you soon realize that they very, very quickly abandoned the teaching of the Apostle Paul and turned to other teachers, the super apostles. The church at Corinth began to think much less of Paul once these super apostles arrived. We had to think that Paul was actually kind of weak and pretty pathetic, unimpressive. And suffering happened to follow Paul everywhere he went. And what's up with that? They began to think very much of themselves, to be much wiser and smarter than they realized and more spiritual, and to think that they didn't actually need to suffer if they played their cards right. This is the church at Corinth. So consequently, they were filled with sexual immorality and fights and division and drunkenness and super spiritual pride. A lot of character they displayed. These are the kinds of things they say and do, and it shows that what they've actually done is turn away from the cross of Jesus. And we know that's true because these are all the things Paul addresses in his letters while he fights for their love and their affection and their loyalty to turn them back to Christ. The same thing's true of the Galatian church. They've abandoned the gospel. They've forsaken the teaching of the apostle Paul. They've bought into the lies of false apostles who are teaching false doctrine. So Paul has to write to them and try to win them back to himself and to God. All the churches he plants, they turn away. This is the Apostle Paul's life. And we could just keep going, right? Do you know, do you know who helped the Apostle Paul plant the church at Philippi? Does anybody know who helped him? Silas. Why was it Silas? Because Barnabas took off. Who was Barnabas? Barnabas was one of the Apostle Paul's closest friends. He was his longtime partner. He was the man who convinced everyone in the early church that Paul was okay, that he had repented of being a Christian killer. Barnabas was the man that the Apostle Paul called his son of encouragement. They went on their first missionary journeys together, but Barnabas left Paul and refused to continue working with him. Ouch. And do you know why? He refused to continue working with him. Because the Apostle Paul would not take Mark with them. And why did he not want to take Mark? Because Mark abandoned him in the midst of persecution. This is the Apostle Paul's life. Everywhere he goes. He led a very lonely life. Not even his own converts, the churches that he planted, wanted anything to do with him. They were ashamed of him as soon as he was out of the picture. They didn't want to obey him. They didn't want to support him. They didn't even want to be associated with him. Now, in contrast to that stands the Philippian church. The church at Philippi is an exception in the New Testament. They were not ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. They were a church that was born in the midst of persecution and suffering, and they didn't know anything else. The poor, stupid Philippians had it in their heads that suffering and sacrificial love were part of what it means to be Christian. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the churches of Macedonia gave out of their poverty to support the needs of the saints. 
Philippi is in Macedonia. He was talking about the Philippians. So here this church is in Philippi, and they heard that the, the Apostle Paul was in prison at Rome. So they gathered everything they could to send to him, to support him, and they sent their faithful brother Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him. And they almost lost Epaphroditus on the way. He almost died. Now picture yourself as the Apostle Paul. You're sitting in a jail cell. You're chained to Roman soldiers on either side. You've been abandoned by everyone except for Timothy and maybe two, one or two other close friends. You're looking at the possibility of being executed for the sake of the gospel. And most of the churches you've risked your life to plant have turned away from you and left you to die and rot in prison. You've been abandoned by everybody, even your closest friends. This is your life, the life of an apostle, the glorious life of an apostle. And then Epaphroditus shows up, half dead, bearing gifts and greetings from the church at Philippi. They heard that you were in chains and that you were alone, and they wanted to help. They wanted to stand with you. They wanted to support you and to help you bear the weight of suffering. They remember everything that you've done for them, how you showed them the way of salvation when they were lost in sin, how you weren't afraid to deal with them truthfully about sin and righteousness and judgment. You were only able to be with there or be there with them for a few days. Church of Corinth had two years almost. He was only in Philippi for a few days before he was run out of town. But they won't ever forget those few days. Now, do you think the Apostle Paul was grateful? Do you think he loved them? The relationship between the Apostle Paul and this church was different. It was sweet. It was special. Do you have relationships that are like that? Can you say what Paul says in chapter 1 of Philippians? We read these kinds of things, and we don't really feel the weight that's behind them. But when he says, they were partners with me in the gospel. You were partners with me in the gospel. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And he means it. Do you have relationships like that? Can you say that about anyone in your life? Can anybody say that about you? By comparison, our relationships are shallow. They're based on nothing more than proximity, who we're close to physically, and affinity, the things we like, even here, even in the church. Think back to high school. How many of you uh, have yearbooks? that are all signed and marked up by friends? Anybody? No? Nobody? Okay. Most everybody, you have yearbooks uh, signed and marked up by, like, really great friends saying really deep and profound and meaningful things like, stay sweet, never change. Have you ever looked back at your, uh, have you ever... Uh, had the experience, the frightening experience of looking back at your old, an old yearbook and reading a message from like your best friend forever um, and wondering who in the world that person is. <laughs> I've been getting these Facebook messages uh, the past several weeks. I got four in the past week because my 10-year uh, reunion is coming up in October. I've been in Bloomington 10 years. So 10 years ago, now I was standing in your shoes. I was a freshman. 
Um, so my 10-year reunion party thing is coming up in October. I, and so I, I went to the Facebook event and I looked at the list of, invi- of everybody who's invited on Facebook. And I, I'm from Evansville. It's not, it wasn't a big school. 350 people in my graduating class. I told myself I would never forget everybody. I'm looking at the list and it's like, I don't know half of these people. And it's only been 10 years. Some of you, it's been like, I don't know. <laughs> Is that five fingers you were holding up, David? So 30, okay. Perry and Marilyn were in the first service. I, they're not here now. I was pretty well connected, but our relationships are shallow. In high school, in high school, I was friends with guys that I played ball with and the kinds of girls who liked the kinds of guys who played ball. And that was it. What are the contexts for our relationships? What are the contexts for the average or for the relationships of average college students? Well, we lived on the same floor together our freshman year. We got stuck together as roommates. We were part of the same frat or the same sorority or had a lot of the same classes or hung out at the same bars or went to the same parties or we were in the music school together and we played in the same orchestra or we were in the B school and we got stuck doing group projects together and that's it, right? Or how about those of you who have moved on from college, just who you work with, right? who sits in the cubicle next to you, or who you hang out with at the water cooler. What are the grounds for your friendship? That's the context. What are the grounds? Affinity, just the things that you like. You like the same things. You like Bach, or you like IU basketball, or you like hunting, or solving abstract math problems, or there are some of you out there like that, or watching the same TV shows. And that's as deep as it gets. And then how do we maintain our shallow relationships? Entirely superficially. Shallow relationships superficially maintained. Facebook, Google Chat, text messaging, Twitter. Cyberspace. Which actually drives us nuts because we're really meant for deep relationships with people, for real intimacy, we crave it, so we all just get lonely and depressed, and then we come up with, like, these bizarre solutions. I'll never forget a few years ago when Steve Moxie, who some of you will remember, explained to me uh, the sociology of coffee shops. He said, really, the sociology of coffee shops is this simple. It's the point of going to a coffee shop to sit and to read or to surf the net is so lonely people can gather together with other lonely people and be lonely together in community. That's the point. Everybody's in there by themselves, sitting with their earbuds in, alone, together. And since we can't get any real intimacy, we try to get it vicariously through other means, through artificial means. So we we immerse ourselves in TV shows or novels that scratch us where we itch. We We become so emotionally invested in TV shows that... We can't miss an episode, and we can laugh, and we can cry, and be angry with, and happy for our characters, and pretend that we know them. 
And we can run the full gamut of all of those emotions in just 40 minutes. And we can flip the TV off and, and feel better. <laughs> it's a cathartic experience for us. Because we have no real relationships. So the same thing's true of pornography. We give ourselves over to pornography because we crave intimacy with the opposite sex. But what we don't have is real intimacy with real people in the context of a real relationship. Just fake intimacy mediated by screens, flickering pixels. And in the church, it's not much different. We, pay, we hang out with people who are easily accessible and who like the things that we like. Right? And to a degree, that's okay. You're allowed to like the things you like. In the church, maybe just some of the things we like are, are different. They're weird, you know. We have our little theological cliques or, you know, our favorite uh, dead person that we like. But we never go beyond that. And then we maintain our relation, relationships just the same, very superficially. It never gets any deeper. And if we're not careful, we end up being no different than everybody else. In other words, we're just as shallow as the Corinthians and the Galatians and Paul's missionary companions. We're just seeking our own interests. That's not how it's meant to be. If that's how it was meant to be, I wouldn't be friends with Don Van Timmeren. He'd hate me, I'd hate him, because we have different interests. We have different theological understandings, but we love each other, because this is the church of the living God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, God unites men and women from different ages and races and interests, and he binds us together through baptism into a brotherhood that's deeper and more real than blood. We become family. And then he gives us work to do. If we're going to have real deep fellowship, if we're going to have real relationships that are deeper, stronger, and longer lasting than our relationships with our preschool pals, it's going to take something much, much bigger to draw and bind us together than we both like the sandbox, right? So let me bring us back to the passage because that was a long rabbit trail. I want to ask the question, why was the Apostle Paul always alone? Why was he always abandoned when things got hard? Why was it that as soon as he was out of the picture, entire churches would cut ties and disassociate themselves with him? Why is it that Timothy is the only worthy man he has? And he gives us just one very simple answer. Everyone seeks after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They seek after their own interests. At the core... At the root, they're selfish. They only care about themselves. Not others. They've never crucified their lusts. They're not truly concerned for Christ. They're not truly concerned for others. In the end, their God is their belly. And this makes sense when we think about the church at Corinth, doesn't it? It explains a whole lot. At the most basic level, they only care about their own interests. The Apostle Paul was there. He was laboring among them for nearly two years. And his presence was utterly humiliating. They suffered persecution when he was there. They were Greek intellectuals, and they had to suffer through his humble preaching. He taught them a kind of Christianity that was difficult. It involved dying to themselves, dying to their sins, dying to their reputations, and being bold for the sake of the gospel. But as soon as he left, as soon as there was some emotional and relational distance, these men came in. 
super apostles. And they were cool. And they were slick. And they said, listen, Paul always makes everything a lot harder than it has to be. And suffering follows that man around in division. It's, with, with the apostle Paul, it's all blood and guts and sin. He has no sense of proportion. They just, they, these men were like parasites. The apostle Paul would go and he would die for people and suffer. And he would, a church would be formed. And then they would come in and they would say, man, it didn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to be so hard. He's crazy. He has no sense of proportion. He's wacko. And you know what? When they preached, it was golden. It was smooth. It was clean. And the Corinthian church felt wiser and more spiritual for having listened to them. They felt like they were advancing beyond the apostle Paul. They were seeing the light. They were understanding why Paul was so dumb. They were susceptible to the temptation of the super apostles because at the root, they had not crucified their lusts. They were vulnerable to someone giving them an easy way out and telling them, actually, that guy Paul is a little too intense. Let me show you how you can be both cool and Christian at the same time. You don't really have to die. So they became proud and they became puffed up and they thought they had knowledge and they thought they were above their teachers and they forgot very, very quickly all of the time and the love and the affection and the discipline that was poured into them by the Apostle Paul. They forgot how Paul put his life in his hands to bring them the truth of the gospel. They forgot how he labored over them, over their deepest and darkest sins, how he ministered to them at the point of their greatest pain. They forgot all of that very, very quickly and traded him in. They remembered his scars, but instead of thinking they were his glory, they thought they were his shame. Foolish, foolish Paul. They didn't remember that he got his scars for their sake, for the sake of their salvation, and for the sake of Christ. Now, all of this should sound very familiar. It should sound like certain people who have gone out from us. It happens around here all the time, and at the root, it's very, very simple. They seek their own interests, they have their comfort in mind, their pride, or their lust. That's why we so often ask when someone's ready to leave, when a college student's ready to leave, okay, what's his name or what's her name? Leave her out of it. This is about my principles. Oh, sure it is. Okay. What, what exactly am I, did I say that is, was so terrible? You're sure... You just aren't tired of not being one of the cool kids. You sure you're not just being seduced by super apostles? Well, how dare you? All right. Okay, you win. How many times does somebody graduate from school and move and get a job and it's like they never knew me, like they never knew us? I spent four years or seven years or more years being nurtured in the church, and then they're out of here, leaving us asking who's next. It's hard. It's hard for all of us. It's hard because we live in a day in which it feels like the super apostles have won. And the best men inevitably make peace with them and turn, if you can't beat them, join them into a Christian principle. It feels impossible to get anywhere without paying lip service to today's super apostles. 
They're sacred cows. We can't say a negative thing about them. They can say all the negative things in the world about us if they want to. We can't say a negative thing about them. We can't push them out of the way. They have to be given free reign to roam in our living rooms if they please. And they can sit around and call us a cult all day long. We're walking on a knife edge when they come up in casual conversation. And they're selling a cheap gospel with no cost at all, where godliness is not measured by denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, but by whether or not this week you've had a warm, sentimental date night with Jesus, which is disgusting. The Apostle Paul wouldn't have any of that, and we can't either. Paul took on anyone that got in the way of the gospel. He took on the Apostle Peter himself when he had to. The Apostle Paul was a faithful shepherd, and he was a faithful shepherd because he only cared about the interests of Christ and of Christ's people. To the point of death, he carried about in his body the brand marks of Christ Jesus, and eventually he was killed. He goes on in chapter 3 of Philippians to explain this, to explain how he's lost everything for the sake of Christ in contrast to false teachers, the super apostles who have lost nothing. He's concerned, he's concerned that the Philippian church is going to fall under the sway of these men. The truth is the church at Philippi hasn't had to deal with them yet. And so Paul is concerned. So all, he, he's sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to remind them of how he was. And he's telling them, listen, Beware of the dogs. It's actually the very first thing he says in chapter 3. Beware of these false teachers. I died. I count everything as lost for the sake of following Christ. Follow my example. Follow the example of those who walk like I did. He's setting up his life as a contrast, and he's sending them men to strengthen them. And the many commenced to us here followed his example. Timothy was a man who loved people and loved Christ more than himself, and it really was that simple. The first thing he says about Timothy is that he has proven worth. He proved his worth and his character by being faithful and serving in the gospel alongside the Apostle Paul. He never left. He never abandoned him. When things got hot, Timothy could be trusted and counted on. He was a man who demonstrated long, slow obedience over a period of time long enough to give the Apostle Paul confidence in his character. He's a proven man, a man who knows how to persevere, a marathon runner, not a sprinter. He's a man that's faithful in little things. You would not find Timothy sitting around waiting for tasks worthy of his gifts. You'd find him doing ordinary, mundane tasks, little things and with joy. And you would not find him shrinking back when things got hot. You could count on Timothy to stand by you. He was a humble man. It says he served under the Apostle Paul's leadership like a son with his father. He wasn't ashamed of the Apostle Paul. He was proud of him. He called him his father in the faith. He had the humility to be in yoke with Paul and to serve under him, to be discipled by him. Nobody else wanted to be taught by Paul. Nobody was that humble. Everybody thought they knew better. Timothy did not sit in judgment on the Apostle Paul. He didn't despise him. He didn't despise his sins or weaknesses. And you know, as much time as he spent with him, he knew Paul's weaknesses and sins. 
He was teachable. He put his head down and he assumed that he was the idiot and that he might possibly have something to learn from this veteran apostle. There are precious few men like Timothy. There are many men who want to be viewed like Timothy was viewed. There are many men who want to be promoted as Timothy was promoted. There are many men who want to have the kind of favor that Timothy had and the kind of respect. But those are men who seek their own interests, not those of Christ. Timothy put his head down and worked. And Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was just like Paul and Timothy. He nearly died to bring comfort and encouragement to the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. So Paul calls him brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's a man who can be relied upon. He's a man of character. You wouldn't have found Epaphroditus sitting on a couch. He's a true servant. I imagine him as the kind of man who shows up at your house wearing a suit and he sees you out back chopping wood or pulling weeds and he jumps in beside you before you even know he's there. He's the kind of man that knows how to get a job done. You don't have to assign him tasks, and if you assign him a task, you don't have to follow up. It's as good as done. But around a man like that, all you have to do is intimate that something needs to be done, and he takes responsibility for it. It's as good as done. Why do I think that? Because he's the kind of man that you send to the Apostle Paul when you hear, Paul's in jail in Rome somewhere, and we want to encourage him. Here, here are some gifts. Go find him. He's the kind of man that you look to to get the job done. He's the kind of guy who's with you and who's all in. He's willing to lay his life on the line for the cause of Christ. He was not a man who sat around playing video games. He didn't live in his mom's basement, and he wasn't a helpless little boy that needed a mommy. He was a man. And the controlling factor in each of these men's lives was they had died to themselves and to their own interests. They lived for the glory of God and the good of others. That's it. Is that you? Are you ruled by yourself, by your own interests? If you are, it's only a matter of time before you're gone. All it takes is the right circumstances to make you uncomfortable enough. You'll kiss us all off. We'll be like the names in the high school yearbook. Paul turns toward the end of chapter 3, and he says this, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, their bellies, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. Men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are men to be honored and imitated and encouraged, especially when no one wants anything to do with them. But the only way any of us will ever have the freedom to honor men like that and to imitate them is if we die to ourselves. We have to give up the desire to be liked. We have to give up the desire to be cool. We have to give up our lusts. We have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Christ by following these men and those among us who walk after their example. We have to, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. God has to be at work among us, changing us and killing our lusts. That's what we need. Or something worse awaits us.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word and for giving us the example of faithful men. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means to die to ourselves and to take up our crosses. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.